Support for this podcast provided by Wisconsin Historical Society Press, proud publishers of Madison in the 60s by Stuart Levitin, an absorbing and evocative account of 10 years that changed the city forever. To order Madison in the 60s and other beautiful books that share our state's centuries-long history and culture in service to the mission of the Wisconsin Historical Society, visit wisconsinhistory.org slash whspress. Hello again, friends, and welcome to Madison Bookbeat, your listener-sponsored community radio home for Madison authors, topics, book events, and publishers. I'm your host, Stu Levitan. We click on two of the criteria today with the award-winning journalist Terry Fry, author of Third Down and Award Ago, the All-American 1942 Wisconsin Badgers. It's from our very good friends at the Wisconsin Historical Society Press. The 1942 Wisconsin football team was coached by one of Newt Rockney's fabled four horsemen and led by three All-Americans. It went 8-1-1, finishing second in the Big Ten and placing third in the final Associated Press poll, although some think it actually was the national champion team. Among the stars were several who would go on to play in the National Football League, including the legendary Elroy Crazy Legs Hirsch. And there were players who would play an important role at the university for decades to come, like Otto Breitenbach and Bob Rennebaum. But there were far more who would suit up in far more serious uniforms, the uniforms of a branch of the United States Armed Forces. Their country called them to war, and off they went. They didn't all see combat, but many did, and several died, including one of the most respected, even beloved athletes in Badger history, two-time All-American Dave Schreiner. Who these young men were, what their 1942 season was like, and what happened to them during and after the war is the business that occupies Terry Fry in this gripping account of some extraordinary but altogether typical young men. It is a book he is uniquely qualified to write. Not only is he an award-winning journalist, voted by his peers as the best sports journalist in Oregon three times and four times in Colorado, He is also the son of a member of that 1942 Badger squad, World War II pilot and longtime assistant coach for the Denver Broncos, the late Jerry Fry of Stoughton, Wisconsin. Among Terry Fry's six other books, Horns, Hogs, and Nixon's Coming, Texas versus Arkansas in Dixie's Last Stand, March 1939, Before the Madness, and the novel Olympic Affair. His website is terryfry.com, that's F-R-E-I, and his Twitter handle is at T Fry. He lives in Denver, Colorado. It's a pleasure to welcome to Madison Bookbeat, Terry Fry. Thanks, Stu. Thanks for having me. And I'd like to say, like to say hi to everybody in the in the Madison area. And they say back. Now, your father was off in Oregon by the time you were born, so you did not have a Wisconsin upbringing, right? My father, after World War II, he played at Wisconsin in 42, 46, and 47. And then he traveled out to Oregon to become a high school coach at Grant High School in Portland, Oregon. And I was born when he was making an intermediate stop at Willamette University in Salem. And then he went on from there to the University of Oregon, where he was on the staff for 17 years, including five, the final five as head coach before he moved on to the NFL. So I didn't have the direct feeling of Wisconsin roots, but I was very conscious of them. And we visited Wisconsin several times when I was growing up. And uh, I, I, I belatedly discovered my dad's connection to Wisconsin. And I belatedly discovered his World War II background. And I tried to make up for lost time by telling that story. And, and that gets us to the fact that this book has a very personal genesis. There's a photograph over your right shoulder, which folks can't see because we're on radio, which tells a little bit of, of the story. Explain how and why this book came to be. I wasn't like a lot of members of my of the, of the baby boomer, boomer generation that that I just almost took for granted as world my dad's World War II service. There would be Christmas cards for many served with. There would be dis- discussions at games when pl- guys came to see him. 
as the the former as the Oregon coach, the former World War II pilot, and there were associations and reunions. So I was aware of it, but I waited way, way, way too long. Finally, uh, this is almost an embarrassing story to tell, but Channel 9 in Denver did a story on him on Broncos Tonight about he had semi-retired from coaching and, and football, but was still involved directly with the Broncos as a consultant and as a scout and as an administrator. And Channel 9 did a story on him. And I, I helped him line up some of the pictures of his World War II service. And then he told us, he, he went on in that story to say things that I didn't even know. And I was so ashamed and embarrassed. I said my dad to my dad, we have to sit down and talk about this. And we, we did sit down and talk about it. And I did a major story on him for Veterans, for veterans Day in the year 2000. And it was met by a tumultuous response. And I had the picture on the wall and he, he used it as a frame of reference in telling me the story uh, of his World War II service of that 1942 Wisconsin team, including two members who were killed in action. And so I realized everybody in that picture had a story like my father's or similar to my father's. You did, you did note that not all of them served in combat, but that what they did was they did what they were asked to do. And whether that meant fighting in the, the uh, horrific island battles in Okinawa or, or being a flight instructor stateside, they did what they were asked to do. And so I, I traveled around for about a year, traveled around and, and met with as many of those surviving 1942 Badgers and told their story of World War II service. And uh, the resulting book was Third Down and a War to Go. And you, you touched on your friends of the Wisconsin Historical Society Press, but they were terrific. I think I could tell a tale out of school here. I was under a two book contract with Simon and Schuster, Hornsongs and Nixon coming, had come out and done pretty well, but they weren't, they were not interested in the story of the 1942 Badgers for reasons I won't get into here. It was a kind of a political and business mess at the time. And so the Wisconsin Historical Society Press jumped in and said, sure, we'll publish it. And they'd helped me with a lot of the research. And they just did a wonderful job with it. And my association with the WHS Press has just been marvelous. So you've got that picture over your right shoulder. Did everyone in that picture from that 42 squad end up in the armed forces, not necessarily in combat, but did they all end up serving? Virtually all. The, the 1943 team included one member, one member of the 1942 team, and that was a player who was excused because his family had a farm and he was needed on the farm to, to produce uh, some of the supplies we needed to, to fight the war, to, to, to supply the soldiers. And so I, I say every one of them contributed because they did. Uh, they scattered. Some of them were involved in the V-12 program, which was the Navy and Marine version of kind of delaying service because we wanted to stagger the, uh, the anointing of officers in the, especially in the Marine Corps and the Navy. And so they, they, it wasn't all going right off to serve, but it was all being involved in service eventually one way or another. What, if anything, did you know about that team as a football team, not necessarily their World War II experience, but them as a team before you began this project? Okay, you're going to get me wound up here because you touched on some people thought they were the national champ. And they were. They were 8-1-1. One, and one. The loss was to Iowa late in the season, 60 nothing, And they probably scored a touchdown that the blind referee didn't, didn't include, uh, didn't allow to stand. And uh, they beat Ohio State head-to-head -head and tied Notre Dame. So that's a pretty good record, 8-1-1 one, and one with a tie against Notre Dame and a victory over Ohio State. Uh, I, I always joke that the Associated Press's poll was pretty young then, and Ohio State was voted number one in the country. And, and as you mentioned, the Badgers were number three. The Helms Foundation got it right. Uh, they, made, they anointed the Badgers the national champions. And I joke about it, but I say, you know, it, it, it's, uh, the poll was a bunch of drunken sports writers who didn't get it right. Yeah. And so I think it was the nation's best teams. They had terrific players. You mentioned Dave Schreiner was a two-time All-American Big Ten MVP. Crazy Lake Search was anointed as Crazy Lake Search in their game against uh, the Great Lakes Naval Station at Soldier Field. And he uh, just played one year as a sophomore at Wisconsin before moving on to Michigan while he was in the V-12 program. And eventually, uh, they, that was the wave of Marines, including some Badgers, 
who were ticketed to serve in the invasion of Japan if the war had continued. And so there was a very a variety of duties. And but the football team was terrific. They were, in my mind, the number one team in the country and should have been officially voted that by the Associated Press. They they beat Ohio State 17 to 7 head to head in Madison on, I believe, on Halloween of 1942 and uh, won that game, not decisively, but uh, convincingly and should have been voted the national champions. You know, when you refer to newspaper reporters of that era as drunken sports writers, that's almost redundant. I know I, I would scratch the word almost. And in a little bit, we're going to talk about the greatest sports writer of them all, Roundy Coughlin, who's just a piecework. We'll get to him in a bit. Do you remember the first time you heard about Dave Schreiner? Uh, my, dad, my dad had mentioned that they, they'd had two players on his team that, that were killed in action, and that was the first time I'd heard of him. And I would say, I'm going to say I was 12-ish, somewhere in that range, and and had not immersed myself in studying the 1942 Badgers. But I, I think that was the first time it kind of came up because Crazy Legs Hirsch visited us in Eugene when he was, uh, when uh, he visited us in Eugene when my dad was coaching at the University of Oregon. And so the, the memories kind of flowed then and Crazy Legs was, was uh, very interesting to listen to also. What was Schreiner like as a guy from Lancaster and as a football player? Well, it's, it's almost almost too good to be true. And then it's a storybook. It, it was one of he was out of one of those books that you read when you were when you were eight years old and reading about Hebrew athletes. And uh, you can't over glamorize what a great guy he was and how what a staunch public, what a staunch teammate, what is what a staunch friend and what a staunch man he was. And it's almost uh it's almost right out of the storybook, uh, and it, it's almost hard to believe. But he was, you know, on December 11th, 1941, after, four days after Pearl Harbor, he wrote the letter to his parents saying, you know, it, what kind of country would this be if everybody sat out and didn't, didn't contribute to the cause? He was even a little bit disgusted by, at that point, even four days after Pearl Harbor, some students in that final fling atmosphere on campus that was beginning we're, we're starting to check in and to, uh, to get deferred or, or stay out of the service. And uh, I think eventually virtually everybody got caught up in and understood the fervor with which uh, everybody had to act at that time to contribute to the cause. And what a lot of them did was after, the, after Pearl Harbor, including my father, they all enlisted in the reserve and the reserve corps were waiting their call up. And so the, we did not like call everybody in immediately after Pearl Harbor and there was a feeling that to leave, leave the young men and women in college at that point until they were needed. And what they were needed a lot sooner than anybody expected. That's why that team was pretty much was pretty much torn down by, by the 1943 season. And I even told a story in the book that, of Mark Hoskins, who was the co-captain also from Lancaster, Wisconsin, who went and visited a general in, in the Chicago area and said, when are you going to call us in? And by us, he meant the Badgers who had enlisted in the Army Air Corps, soon to be the Army Air Forces, and they wanted to be called in, and they were, uh, and, but the general said, hold your horses, guys, we'll call you in soon enough, and it was pretty soon. And why did, now your father and Mark Hoskins, the Army Air Corps, the Army Air Force, Schreiner, Bob Bauman, others in the Marine Reserves, why did they make the choices they did? Uh, my dad said that Harry Stuhldreher had told him that my dad was my dad and Otto Breitenbach, familiar figure there, of course, uh, because of Edgewood High School and his service at the University of Wisconsin, uh, were the two youngest players on the team. Uh, freshmen could not play varsity at that time, but they were like 18 years old as sophomores. And the original thought was that uh, the younger guys could go into the Army Air Forces because of the tremendous amount of training involved and they might not be called in right away. Uh, they were eager to get in, but they also understood. And Harry kind of steered them into the Army Air Forces, Army Air Corps and Army Air Forces. Dave Schreiner wanted to be a pilot, but his colorblindness ruled him out. And so he ended up going into the Marines. In terms of Schreiner's not just willingness to serve, but almost eagerness to serve, the fact that 
he took the initiative to notify his draft board that he had dropped out of pre-med and, and was no longer wow. entitled to that deferment is a very telling note on his character. Isn't that amazing? I know I, I was starting to find that out. I did go to Lancaster and uh, look, saw where Dave Schreiner and Mark Hoskins grew up and even appeared at the high school making the speech and uh, presentation and asking que answering questions uh, during the promotion of the book. And so I felt like I got to know Dave Schreiner by extension without, you know, he was long gone, of course, but uh, Mark Hoskins was living in San Diego when I went out to visit him in the last days of his life. And he had cancer and he knew it and he read the manuscript and uh, uh, I would say gave, gave, it his, his, gave it his approval and that meant a lot to me. But it, he would get choked up. Mark Hoskins is the, uh, was a, was a co-pilot of a bomber in Europe and was shot down and served in the Great Escape, Stalag Luv III, uh, informally the, the Great Escape Camp. And he told me the stories of life in that camp and the state uh, of, of, of Dave Schreiner, telling me the stories about Dave Schreiner. And he got misty and was very uh, emotional and sad when telling me the stories. Yeah, they ended up separated, you know, the opposite sides of the world. Dave Schreiner serving in the Pacific, Mark Hoskins serving in Europe. And uh, Mark was imprisoned in Stalag Luv III, but there was a time when he was shot down and missing in actions and Dave, Dave Schreiner was very emotional about worrying about whether Mark Hoskins had survived and eventually hearing that he was in Stalag Luv three. He happened. Uh, so Mark Hoskins was very, very emotional in talking about Dave Schreiner. He was very, very emotional in, in talking about what a great guy he was and eventually, and eventually hearing he'd been killed in action. And so the friendship, the friendship was just very deep and very goes back to childhood. There's a picture in there of the of Dave Schreiner and Mark Hoskins at about nine years old, maybe ten years old, and they looked like they had just talked somebody into painting Aunt Polly's fence. Just uh, two very mischievous young men. What was Hoskins' experience his life as a prisoner of war? It, I was really surprised that it seemed to fit kind of what I had heard and read, and even that. Even the movie The Great Escape, while well, taking great liberties with the facts in terms of who was actually in the area of a camp and and uh, who was involved in the the Great Escape when uh, the reprisals were were immediate and ugly, uh, that part was uh, was semi contrived. But the actual daily life in the in the POW camp was stunningly close to accurate, both in the movie and and in other works in books I've read and everything else that that uh, that day-to-day -day camp life and they were just so remarkable mark had a had a what amounted to and what looked like a high school yearbook called clipped wings and it recounted life among the uh, the american part the americans in the prison camp in Stalag Luv three and they were doing things like putting out a newspaper they had a radio station uh and they put on plays and uh, even musicals and it was just like they played hockey they they played uh they played football they did a lot of things and it was certainly it was a miserable life a miserable existence with terrible food trying to make do with with supplies and things from the red cross but it, it was not a it was not an easy life it was an ugly life it was an uncomfortable life but but uh what what you've heard and seen about the actual prison camp conditions uh, was pretty accurate. We're talking with Terry Fry. His book is Third Down and a War to Go, the All-American 1942 Wisconsin Badgers. Stu, I should jump in and mention that they ended up being uh, the Stalag Luv three inmates. Uh, prisoners had to do a forced march, and it was amazing that they survived. Uh, it was a deadly, deadly forced march for a lot of them in the final days of the war as the Germans tried to get them away tried to get them to the West. And it was just an ugly thing. But Mark Koskins one of the, was one of the lucky survivors. So after an almost semi-tolerable life in the prison camp, uh, they were subjected to just a horrific forced march. And uh, those who survived were fortunate. You mentioned uh, the coach, the, the little general, Harry Stoldreher. Is that, what is the correct pronunciation? Stoldreher. Stoldreher. 
or just Harry. Yeah. Literally a legendary football player is the All-American quarterback for Newt Rockney at Notre Dame, immortalized by Grant Lynn Rice as one of the four horsemen. He is in several national and Wisconsin football halls of fame, but he was not someone we would call a player's coach, was he? No, he was. Uh, there was almost a semi-rebellion of the 42 Badgers after they lost the game to Iowa. And uh, Pat Harder, the rough and tumble fullback on the team who would go on to be a pro football player and then an NFL umpire and was very well known in the Wisconsin area, almost led a, a player's re a player's rebellion against Harry. They thought he was too hard on them sometimes and was was just a was a would involve himself in bitter reprisals for what he believed to be the team's shortcomings uh, at times. But he was a perfectionist and probably did them good as a football team. He showed a great concern for the players when they served in the war by staying in touch with them. So I'm kind of intrigued by him as a as kind of a mixed figure in that he could just he, he could be very uh, close-minded and, and almost bitter in reacting to what he believed as, as uh, things the team should have done or should have accomplished. But he was also, uh, he could have a good heart uh, when the time called for it too. So uh, I don't think my dad and the, the team really felt as if he was a beloved figure, but he was a respected figure for the most part. There were some differences of opinion. And I think later my father is a college football coach at the University of Oregon took some of the lessons from Harry almost to the opposite side about wanting to uh, wanting to relate to his players and be close to his players. Did your father's career as a coach and a scout give you any particular insights into Harry and his assistants? No, I don't think so. It was really a different era. They, they had very few assistant coaches at that time. It was a very complicated offense, a single wing, and I, I don't really think my dad picked up too much from Harry, Harry Stoldrayer, other than some things he didn't want to do. And, and also coming, becoming uh, heartfelt and, and tender at the right time for his players. Harry could do that. Um, but I, I don't think my dad really took too many. You know, it's amazing how, many, how much football changed between 1942, 45, 46, and 47 when my dad played. And when he was coaching in Oregon in the late 60s and early 70s, the period wasn't that great a period of time, but uh, the changes in the college football world were, were monumental and vast. So unlike Harry, your father never denied somebody a varsity letter just out of spite. Yeah, that was, that was Bob Hanslick, uh, who could be a character, who could be a pain in the you-know-what, was a starting, starting in for the Badgers and gave, gave Harry, it was Harry's problem child. And so, yes, he, Bob Hanson earned a letter. He ended up playing at three different Big Ten universities, uh, but because of the conditions of the wartime, because of the wartime conditions. And uh, Harry did withhold the letter from him out of spite because he, he just was mad and it was a, cheap, it was a uh, petty way to, to be involved in a reprisal to Bob Hanson. And I was one of, I, that was one of the hardening things is eventually after the book came out and that was documented, uh, the University of Wisconsin awarded Bob Hanslick his his letter, and he the family sent me a picture. Sent me a picture of him wearing his letter jacket, and it was kind of funny because uh, uh, Bob Hanslick's son ended up playing football at the University of Washington against my dad's teams. Oh, that's that's a great little uh, coda there. Uh, so Schreiner and Hoskins start classes in. September 1939, which is the same month Germany invades Poland. What are their lives like in over the next two years while the rest of the world is at war and we're not in it yet? Well, I also wrote a book called March 1939 Before the Madness about the very first NCAA basketball tournament uh, won by the University of Oregon. And the theme of that book was, was that in 1939, there was the, the gathering war clouds the gathering clouds of war over Europe and but from over here the 1939 athletes in the basketball tournament and the University of Wisconsin Badgers with with Dave Schreiner and Mark Hoskins and their contemporaries were kind of looking around and th thinking in the back of their minds you know we're going to have to get involved in this sooner or later and so there were, over the next few years including the 1942 football season there was a definite and I, I learned about this during the research and also uh, just personal experience and talking to people about it. 
is that there was a final fling atmosphere on campus. They, they knew that uh, this might be their last year, last two years, however long it would take for us to get involved. But there was a really a foreboding feeling and a pretentious feeling that we were going to be involved sooner or later. And I think that final at, that final fling atmosphere on the Wisconsin campus was really uh, was really something to behold. But on a day to day basis, Schreiner is is working at Ann Emory Hall. He's is he is he becoming a big man on campus? Is he already a big man on campus? What's what, what are their lives like? Well, of course, they had the freshman season when they could not play varsity. So they were playing in 40, 41 and 42. And yeah, it's just like today, star athletes working as busboys or waiters in women's, women's dormitory cafeterias, right? Isn't that the way it is? No, it's not. <laughs> yeah. So Dave, Dave was becoming a very big man on campus in his sophomore year uh, when he was starting to play varsity. He was becoming a star of the team. And so was Mark Hoskins. Uh, and, you know, there was kind of, you could see there were a lot of elbows being dug into people next to them. Hey, that's Dave Schreiner. Or, hey, that's Mark Hoskins. And uh, it was real. He, where Dave became beloved was, was serving as a waiter, serving as a busboy, uh, both in, in getting involved in service in his fraternity. And so uh, there was a lot of nodding recognition about that's the football player. And so, yeah, they were becoming big men on campus. And there was no doubt about it is there was a feeling that this, this football program and this football team is, is very much stepping into the national forefront. Although from what I've read in research for a book I'm writing on that period, the firemen were not particularly thrilled about having these football players use their firehouses as dormitories. Oh, I don't know. I, I, I might debate that a little bit with you. My dad was one of the several players who lived in firehouses and their job was to close the door after the fire engines went out. They got free room, room and board for, for that. My dad and Kim Courier, uh, who... Uh, ended up in Beloit. Uh, they were lifelong best friends. They were starting guards in 46 and 47. They were living in a firehouse uh, and several other players, including Bob Bauman, who was, was also killed in the Battle of Okinawa, were living in firehouses. And so they were, uh, I, I think they were fairly beloved figures. Okay. So we get to Pearl Harbor, December 41, and now we're obviously, we're now in the war. How were they able to focus on football in that coming season, in that season of 42? They were, they were following the uh, progress of the early, you know, the early negative progress of the war for the United States. And they were, they were, I think, again, getting the feeling that they were going to, they were going to be involved soon. And so there was kind of a look, there was a look around in 39, 40 and 41. And uh, a feeling that they would soon be involved, and that's why they they all enlisted in kind of the services of their choice, uh, and also they were kind of shoved in that direction by Perry Stolgrier and others at at times. Not not uh, not that they would have avoided service, but they were they were uh, kind of pointed to specific services, the various choices at the time. And so I think there was a feeling there was a feeling that they would be involved soon, and that, that they could at least get their not, it wasn't the it wouldn't be choice so much as as the they were, the service that they really caught their eye and they were most interested in serving in and so there was kind of that even in, within the team sense of picking your service and being, getting in line and getting ready and so that was hanging over their heads all the entire time and Harry Stoudamire would talk about it uh, he would he even said several times that he thought he was preparing his players to be involved in warfare soon and he wanted to toughen them and get them ready and you know that's overstating the the potential and and what football is i i pretty much despise the metaphor of sport of football as war or war as football either way you want to put it but uh i do think there was a feeling that they were they were looking ahead to wartime service it just was a question of how soon it would be on, on the militarization uh, of football concept. Many of these Badgers went on to very successful careers, some in sports like your father and Elroy Hirsch, some in a combination of sports and business like Otto Breitenbach and Bob Rennebaum. 
Can you assess whether it was their football training or their military service that was the key? There's no, there's no doubt in my mind that, that the football service and the military service combined formed kind of a combination uh, impetus for what they did in their lives. And uh, it toughened them, it gave them discipline, it, it allowed them to, to understand the bonds of even friendship within the professional realm. And so, yes, I think both, I think it was both military and football that contributed to their later success. Uh, you know, as, as you under, as you said, many of them were coaches. Irv Kissling was a well-known coach uh, in the area. And there were a lot of them who were, Don Litchfield was a successful uh, car dealer up in Eau Claire. Dave Donlin was a successful real estate man in Eau Claire. And Don Gallagher was a successful successful high, high school coach. One of the valued pictures I have is of me sitting with Dave Donilon, uh, Don Litchfield, and John Gallagher at Borders Bookstore. Remember Borders Bookstore? Sure. Sitting in the Borders Bookstore uh, player and making uh, uh, up there. And so the, I think there were, Fred Nagus was a very successful businessman. And so I think there's no, there's no doubt in my mind the combination of wartime service and, and the football uh, enable them to be, be more prepared for World War II life. Sports can be such a formative experience and if done right, it really teaches right. teamwork and coordination and a, a higher goal. And it can, it can really be a valuable experience for a young person. Even if you're a bad athlete like me, you know, I, I still hold a Colorado State record for uh, most, most pass balls in a season in baseball, <laughs> but I learned a lot in sports and it was very helpful to me. And I think there are a lot of us like that. We don't have to be star athletes. We don't have to be even even a good high school athlete for, for those lessons. To see. Whether or not you were a good athlete, you, you are, as I noted, a, an award-winning journalist. And I imagine, I know one of the joys of your research was getting to read the immortal journalism of the legendary Joseph Roundy <laughs> Coughlin, whom you note was given to, quote, unabashed cheerleading and inattention to the rules of grammar and syntax, which is putting it mildly. Can, can you imagine being his copy editor? Well, I was going to say, I think I got the impression that he was like, you, you didn't go there. You didn't go there to edit his copy because part of the Part of his charm was kind of his irascibility and also complete inattention to the rules of grammar and, and everything else. And so it was, you know, let Roundy be Roundy. And he was a real character. And apparently he was a good touty. I mean, they actually promoted his picks in that, you know, pre-gambling <laughs> era that, you know, here's Roundy's picks, do with him what you, what you will. As a journalist, you have a good eye and an ear for the fanciful or even downright misleading stories that Harry planted with the compliant press of the day, even referring your father had concussions and had to quit the team. Yeah. And, and, and Harry got the newspaper to call it an acute sinus infection. Yeah, it was very, it was very ironic because he also, my father had several, several concussions and, and we talked about it later because he was involved with his players at Oregon is having concussions and he was way ahead of his time in spotting them, not letting players play. He didn't just hold up two fingers to see how many fingers. And if they came within one, send them back in the game. It wasn't, he didn't, he didn't go along with it. You got your bell rung, get back in their uh, era. And clearly he had many concussions in the, in the leather helmet era. And in night in 1947, as you're referring to it, there was, I have a huge headline cry out of Yale game where they would like every week chart his progress and whether he'd be able to play. That's what it was. He didn't have sinus infection. He was having headaches, horrible headaches, and uh, was unable to play because of concussions. And Harry, there was the stories in involving his departure from the, his, the stories about him not, not being able to play again and having to give up football in midseason in 1947, as you say, he just said he had acute, had an acute sinus infection. The irony where there was, and we eventually talked about it, and he'd had concussions for several years. And if he'd only mentioned it to uh, when he was taking his uh, Army Air Corps physical, he probably would have been 
uh, kicked out of the service or not, or been 4F or not been involved in having to serve, but that wasn't even a possibility. He wanted to keep it quiet. And later when he was the head, the head coach at Oregon, several players came out of, came out and talked about it and how he was way ahead of his time and being concerned about concussions and not players, not letting players play after suffering, after suffering concussions until you were a hundred percent sure they were recovering. How do you think today's press would cover that 42 team compared to the way Hank Casserly and, and Roundy covered it? <laughs> you know, I'm not sure. I think there's, there was a definite feeling of, of you didn't talk to players. You know, you, you could read almost the entire coverage of the 1942 year and you will never see, except for maybe kind of fanciful, fancied up conversations in the locker room. You'd, among the players, you didn't see, you didn't see sports writers sitting down and doing an hour interview with Dave Schreiner or with Mark Hoskins or with asking the in-depth questions for feature story profiles during the week or after the games. And so they were writing their impressions almost from above it all. And so there was really no feeling of intimacy of getting to know the team. And uh, that, that's where I really think the shortcoming in old time in that era as journalism was, was that they were writing as observers more than as trying to seek out information, the profile to make you feel like you knew the team. And so as I look through the, the clippings from that year and those seasons, plural, I never really got the feeling I got to know anybody from the journalism of that era. That's not to knock it. You have to judge everything, whether it's athletics or uh, anything else, you have to judge it within its time. And that was just the fashion then that, that you wrote as observers more as a chronicler of the human condition or trying to let your readers know them. And, and when, they did, when they did quote people or when they did uh, write from observation on the interchanges and the line everything, it again was more as an observer than as uh, letting them, letting them uh, talk and you letting them tell their own story or for you to profile them. That's where I really feel feel that uh, I tried to fill in the blanks of that many, many, many years later to try to personalize team. And when I wrote the book, about half the team was still alive. And so I was able to kind of fill in the blanks about other players, Dave Shiner, Bob Bauman, for example, and others who passed away too soon by uh, talking to their teammates. And so, you know, that was a, that was a very heartening and, and experience to me was to personalize them. The journalists of that era really were into telling, profiling the athletes involved. I think you did a wonderful job in giving us the detail about what the players were doing and thinking. I mean, you've got the snapshot of what people said and did on Pearl Harbor Day, and you've got the accounts of exploits. I imagine that getting those, having access to the letters that Dave Schreiner wrote was really key to your understanding of him. Judy Corfield, his niece, had uh, the letters that he had written home, and she also had such things as the telegram that her grandparents had gotten, uh, telling them that Dave Schreiner had been killed in action. And so I sat in her living room in the Chicago area and looked through them there, and there was also some letters at the Lancaster Medical Society in Lancaster. So it was it was almost uh, it was almost a surreal experience to hold the letters in my hands and to hold uh, the telegram in my hands and think back to the impact they must have had when they were read for the first time and held in the family's hands. And that was a, a very, a very moving experience for me. And I think it's one that I've learned that now, you know, as we close in on the time when we've lost all, all those from the greatest generation, all those that served in World War II, that we can't emphasize enough that, and for, for years, for the years since I did the book, I've been telling people, if you've got a two veteran in your family, sit down and talk to them about it. Don't let them, don't let them get away from us without having filled us in. And so I think you saw a lot of, a lot of verbal oral histories uh, being collected over the last few years. Not, not because I urged it, but because I think the feeling the feeling was fairly universal that we were about to lose them, that we needed, we needed to get their stories told, both within a family and within uh, 
within a larger group, within a community, within a country, or within anything, and to get their stories and get them told. The epilogue makes that point very powerfully. It's a very elegaic, almost bittersweet, that you're thankful that you got as much as you did, but you regret that there was more that was gone by the time you started the project. Yes, and uh, I, I wish I'd started it sooner. I, I, I made the remark in the book that I, I, I wish I'd started it sooner. I wish I'd done it sooner. But I think that feeling of angst and regret is kind of between the lines of every page in the book that you, I, I think readers have been able to sense that kind of emotion, my emotional connection to the story and both uh, pride in telling it and regret and not telling it sooner. And I think it was a driving force kind of moving the story forward and, uh, uh, and helping drive it all the way to conclusion. Yeah. We're talking with Terry Fry. His book is Third Down and War to Go, the All-American 1942 Wisconsin Badgers. That conclusion, there's, for the people who know the story before they pick up a book, there's an inexorability about the conclusion. The Battle for Okinawa left 2,938 Marines and 4,675 U.S. Army dead and missing. Bob Bauman is fatally shot in the head June 6, 1945. Dave Schreiner is killed June 21st, 1945. This is under eight weeks before Japan surrendered. How hard was it to write the chapter about Okinawa? Very, very difficult. Uh, there, there was a feeling that especially uh, Dave Schreiner saw Bob Bauman's body. They served together. Uh, he, and he saw, I talked to a lot of their fellow veterans of, of uh, the 6th Marines and learned a lot about Bob Bauman's service, the Dave Schreiner service, their actions on Okinawa and in the, in the battles in the Pacific. And so I, I really felt like I personalized them there, but it, it was such a sad, sad, moving story to tell. And Dave Schreiner's death especially was pretty much needless. Uh, the battle was won. Uh, I, I talked to several veterans who served with him who said, uh, the, the officer who sent him out on this mission couldn't pour water out of a boot. And uh, they were pretty much disdainful of the decision to send him out on the patrol. Uh, he ended up probably being killed in a fake Japanese surrender. Uh, I wasn't able to prove that 100%, but that's, that's my supposition and it's the supposition of many involved. And that there was no reason for him to be uh, on the firing line, so to speak, at that point. So his death was they're all tragic. Every single death is tragic. Dave Shriner's, Dave Shriner's death is the battle. Uh, the day before Okinawa was de declared secure was especially needless. Bob Bauman was a very, very heroic Marine and he died. He died uh, under circumstances that were draped in glory and uh, uh, re regret for, from all of us who have read about them. Uh, I, I I was really, really proud of the reporting that I did in tracking down those who had served with Dave Schreiner in the Pacific. And I uh, got a lot of help from members of the 6th Marine Division uh, alumni group. And they, I went through that directory, matching up units and tracking down a lot of people. And uh, eventually I tracked down, I was talking to uh, one veteran of the Marines who served with them, who was who told me great stories about Dave Schreiner, especially in Bob Bauman. And he says, you should talk to our captain. Now, he's still alive. And I said, uh, okay, can you, but I don't think he's in the directory because I can't find him. And the, the veteran goes, well, here's his, here's his address. 10 Cook Street, Denver, Colorado. <laughs> Dave Schreiner's captain was living with it. I could walk to his captain's house. <laughs> so I talking to him about Dave Schreiner and Bob Bauman. And it was a very moving experience. And uh, I did tell, I think I was able to track down a lot of those men, a lot of those men who tragically and sadly have now left us for the most part. But I tracked down a lot of those men who served with, with Bauman and Schreiner. And I think the story that emerged was something I'm very proud of. It's almost a subplot to the book in, in the sense that Third Down in a War to Go has many, many kind of offshoots and sub, subplots. 
and I told other stories in newspaper and magazine type stories later. But uh, I'm very proud of, of, and it's just, it's just, it's a story I didn't want to have to tell, but I'm proud to have told it. And it just, it just the tragedy of Bob Bauman and Dave Schreiner's deaths was, was something that was, will never leave me. Was Schreiner as good a lieutenant as he was a man and a football player? Yeah, and he, if you, you, I think the one thing you leave that, I think the one thing that leaves with you when you read about Dave Schreiner's military service was he was not as fiery and perhaps as quote decisive a leader as Bob Bauman, his fellow Badger uh, tackle serving in the same unit was. Dave Schreiner was more the leader of the quiet example, you know, and that can be happen on the football field. That can happen in battle. I think Bob Bowen was more of the fiery military leader type and Dave Schreiner was more of the quiet leader by example. And it worked when they were serving together. It worked when they were playing together at Wisconsin and it worked when they were serving together in the Pacific. And in that sense, that's, that's, that's again, kind of the, the military uh, athletic tie that can that we at least can summon occasionally without getting too carried away as you note in the book the university named men's residence halls within the confines of camp randall after dave schreiner and bob bauman although they're no longer used as dormitories but the the website for the uw housing program notes that it opened the schreiner hall but doesn't even mention that there was a bob bauman hall and Jim Feldman's history of the university buildings notes that Bauman and Schreiner were students, but doesn't identify them as football players. No. It's, your father said that as a coach, he used Dave Schreiner as an inspiration. Yeah. Has the university done enough to honor the memories of Dave Schreiner and Bob Bauman and tell succeeding generations about them? In 2006, the University of Wisconsin uh, got around to and did uh, retire Dave Schreiner's number on the facade of the stadium and honored him at the 2006 game. Uh, and I went to that game and was, uh, enjoyed watching the ceremony and being a part of it uh, as an observer. And that, that was kind of the, the major honoring of Dave Schreiner. His number's been retired. Uh, probably Bob Bauman's contribution hasn't been honored enough. Uh, I do wish, and it's been brought up by several people, that, that Dave Schreiner would be honored more with maybe a statue out, out in the... Uh, outside the stadium and uh i i think they could do the same thing for bob bauman tie them together as the world war ii veterans on players on the same glorious wisconsin team and also uh, uh honor their contribution uh giving their lives in the battle of okinawa so i would say no it probably hasn't i'm saying that from afar i'm saying that as a huge admirer of the university of wisconsin and its record in honoring those who served in the war and uh, and also, but I do I do wish there was more definitive, decisive, prominent mention of Bob, both Bob Bauman and Dave Schreiner. Maybe it's because Bauman was a tackle from Chicago and not a an end from Lancaster, and some he just doesn't, and not an All American the way Schreiner was. But it seems to me that they should both have have some recognition. So you know, the thing about Bob, Bauman, you're right. He's from Harvey, Illinois. And his, he had a younger brother who ended up playing at, at uh, Illinois. So in 1946, my dad and, and the handful of, of 1942 Badgers who came back to play for Wisconsin in 1946 and 47 played against Bob Bauman's brother <laughs> in the Wisconsin-Illinois game in 1946. And the interesting thing was Bob Bauman spelled his last name with the two N's at the end. And uh, his, his brother... Frank spelled it with one N, and it was it was kind of a complicated process of a family deciding which way to spell their last name. But Bob, that was near as near as I can tell that week they're playing against the brother of a 1942 teammate who was killed in action. And as near as I can tell, it was never mentioned in the media that week. Wow, there'd be a whole 30 but 30 for 30 on that on ESPN if yeah. that happened today. What was it like for the Badgers of 42 to come back to campus after the war and play in 46 and 47? Did the boys on the team even understand what these men had been through? I think they did because of the relative immediacy. I think they faded a little bit in the 
next few years. But there was a there there was a recognition of what they had done, except they did. I, I've seen the quote media guides what pass for media guides at the time, and each player has a little kind of a one paragraph capsule, and it did mention, for example, that my father was a veteran of sixty seven P thirty eight fighter missions in the Pacific. Uh, in 46 and 47 media guides that was mentioned and it was pretty much each player's military record was was uh, traced there but I think that was in the immediacy of the post-war period when my dad went out and coached at uh, high school football in Portland Oregon after the war I have attended reunions of that team that won a, the Oregon State Championship and kind of started my father's climb up the ladder into the coaching ladder I went to that reunion and they basically said they really didn't know much about what they had done what my dad had done in World War II, didn't, didn't know very much. And then here's a man who coached at the University of Oregon for 17 years, 17 years, including five as the head coach, and his coaching biography, I can almost quote a word for word without looking at it, said, Jerry played at Wisconsin in 1942, 1946, and 1947 with such luminaries as, as Pat Harder, the late Dave Schreiner, and Elroy Crazy Legs Hirsch. After graduating from Wisconsin, he began his coaching <laughs> career in 1948. At, he could have been off what? Mowing lawns for three years. In his University of Oregon coaching biography, this is a Pac-12 head coach, Pac-8 at the time, head coach, does not even mention what he did in World War II. And uh, the same thing when he went into the National Football League. It was just as if those three years didn't exist. And there's no reason to, to say what he had done and what he'd accomplished in his wartime service. And that's just the way it was. It's just the way it was. And uh, I remember when after the reunion, after that high school reunion, I asked my dad the very question essentially that, that you just asked me, Stu, uh, did, was, was everybody aware of that? And I asked my dad, well, how come you guys didn't talk about it very much? And he said, he said, well, everybody did it. You know, they looked around and everybody involved, if they were high school coaches, the other coach had served in the war. And so everybody did it. And that was almost taken for granted. And they just didn't talk about it. And so here's a, here's a coach who could be a major coach, college coach at the University of Oregon and not even have his military record listed in his coaching biography. That's just the way it was. And they didn't even explain why the reference was to the late Dave Schreiner. I mean, it's just mind boggling to me today. And your father, as all the other men of his generation, was too modest to say, uh, you know, the reason, well, why don't you put another sentence in there explaining that I wasn't off plowing fields? Well, there was a, there was a famous instance in this kind of, I mentioned this at the start of the, at the start of third, war, third down in a war to go, where he was up at training camp. He was done coaching. He was kind of working as an administrator, a consultant, and a scout for the Broncos. And there was a sports writer from Colorado Springs named Mike Burroughs, who was a World War II uh, airplane aficionado and was very interested in it. And it, it, it came up over lunch in the cafeteria at training camp, and they started talking. It came up that Mike was a World War II uh, airplane buff. And so my dad said, oh, my dad essentially said, well, yeah, you know, I flew a P-38. And they just started talking about it. And pretty soon, as I understand it, there were like 25 people gathered around in the, in the Denver Broncos lunchroom listening to him talk about flying a P-38 in World War II and, and the P-38. And, that, and I, again, there were things involved there, but I was sheepish to say that I didn't know. And uh, it became almost a, a legendary conversation that several radio hosts who were listening to it uh, just marveled at it and brought it up on the air. And so that was that was another kind of driving force for me to get involved with writing with writing the book after I did Horn Songs and the Nixon coming about the 1969 Texas Arkansas football game attended by Richard Nixon and there were all kinds of things going on around it a pivotal pivotal time in our country after I did that book that's I was determined after hearing all this kind of reacquainting myself and acquainting myself with my father's wartime service that drove me to write third down in a war to go. Mm. Some of the instances involved in, in the impetus and, and kind of the uh, drive that I had to do it are almost embarrassing to tell, but I do it. Richard Nixon, of course, also served in the Pacific. Um, you have read and mm -hmm. thought more about the war in Pacific than most Americans. 
has that experience affected your thinking of how and of how that war ended? Very much so. Uh, I, I've been involved in talking to, I'm doing a book project now with a 99-year-old ex, ex-Marine who served in the Pacific, who was literally on the way uh, across the Pacific to, to take part in the invasion of Japan uh, when the war ended. And uh, talking to him about that experience has been very emotional, but I've been uh, very, very much affected by uh, the, the uh, emotionalism of, of hearing these veterans talk about the ugliness of the war in the Pacific and what they went through and kind of the, uh, the trying times they went through in, in being involved in that. You and I are, are roughly the same generation, I think roughly the same liberal baby boomer ideology. Did this experience in talking to veterans of the Pacific change your attitude on Truman's decision to drop the atomic bomb on Japan? Yes, it did. You know, you remarked about my background. Yeah, I grew up wearing Birkenstocks, hugging trees, yeah. eating granola in Eugene, Oregon. And there's no doubt as if I, I was very regretful about the decision to drop the bombs until I started reading about them, uh, reading about the process involved in, in speaking with the with the men who served in World War II and would have been called into service uh, to invade Japan. And it would have been a horrific and, and, and re, let's face it, the realization that the, the horror involved wouldn't have just been on our side. It would have been uh, involved with both nations involved in the war. It would have just been a horrible, horrible a happenstance to have to invade Japan for both the nations involved. When I did, and weirdly, when I did uh, Horns, Hawks, and Nixon coming, Bud Zinke was a physics professor at the University of Arkansas and the major faculty anti-war leader, anti-Vietnam war leader. And he led the, uh, he led the uh, protest against the Vietnam War in front of President Nixon at that Texas-Arkansas football game where everybody in the stadium seated on the correct side could see it on the hill above the stadium. The leaders of that anti-war protest were, uh, were Bud Zinke and Don Donner, uh, a, a member of the Vietnam Veterans Against the War who had returned to the campus and was a student. They were the two leaders of the anti-war protest in front of Nixon. And I talked to, I talked to Bud Zinke and he had served in World War II and he was, was a, was very well known as an advocate against the war, the Vietnam War at that time. I asked him about, uh, he had served in the Pacific and was a radio man in advance of the invasions. And I asked him what he thought about dropping the bombs. And he said, he said, despite his uh, leanings toward anti, anti-war sentiment at that time, he said if President Truman had been discovered to have had the bomb and not used it, he would have been... Uh, we would have gone to the White House and protested. Uh, and he said it, he'd said something else, but I didn't want to uh, descend into the, into the uh, basement of bad taste. He used a little stronger words. And, and that really taught me a little bit. Here's a guy who's demonstrably on the record for in the, in the peace movement, in the anti-war movement, who was very, very decisive about the, the dropping the bombs were the right things to do. There's, it's nothing to celebrate it's nothing to, uh, except as a technological accomplishment of the, the Manhattan Project uh, getting accomplished what it needed to accomplish. There was nothing to celebrate about it. It was just horrific, but uh, it was the right decision. If Dave Schreiner had survived the war, how do you think his life would have played out? Would he have gone on to play pro ball with the Detroit Lions? At that time, he was the 11th pick in the, in the NFL draft, the first pick of the second round. I think there's no question he can play in the NFL. But there, there was the feeling then that the, the NFL was kind of almost a second job for a lot of those guys. It, was not, it was, did not make you financially for life. So there were a lot of guys who took different courses in life who could have played in the NFL. I think Dave Schreiner might have been one of them in the sense that I think he could have played, you know, like maybe two or three years in the NFL and said, okay, I've done that and uh, ended up going to law school or ended up being an educator, something along those lines. Uh, he, he, was not, he was not a great student, never pretended to be, uh, but he was uh, just a tremendous man who I think could have ended up leading in, in various capacities or any number of capacities 
perhaps as a lawyer and perhaps as an educator. And it's a pity we never got a chance to to see how that would have been. Uh, finally, well, you know, people have, people have asked me how I've been affected by it. I don't know if you know this, but uh, when I was at Judy Corfield's house, she gave me the, the picture wallet that Dave, wallet, that Dave Schreiner was carrying on him when he was when he suffered his fatal wounds on Okinawa. And I have that in a drawer about eight feet from me as I speak. And that, that really, really affected me emotionally. And I, I touch it every day. And uh, it, there are a lot of people who don't understand the circumstances who don't understand how it affected me. But uh, I'm proud to every day to, to have told the story of that team and to, and to have told the story of those, those men and to look around at my den here with those pictures and to hold the, the wallet that Dave Schreiner was carrying and to uh, occasionally listen to the tapes of those conversations with the Marines who served with him. She let you have the wallet. That's remarkable. Yeah. That's really something. It's a fight out the fatal wallet. Yeah. Has, has the fraternity done anything to preserve his memory at the, at the fraternity house? I, I'd have to say, I don't know. Yeah. I'm going to say, I, I, I'm going to guess that probably some 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 uh, picture or a certificate somewhere in there yes but i don't yeah. know that for sure as i said I'm, i've been researching this book on madison from 32 to 2006 and when i got to 1945 i knew what was coming and i get there and big picture on the front page and big headlines and you just say oh man how, how did the city as a whole react from what i could tell there was almost an air of disbelief that uh, that everybody was aware of previous deaths in combat and that that it cut across the swath of American society in Wisconsin and Oregon and everywhere. But each time when when um, uh, a death of a notable figure like that created a kind of an air of disbelief of of this Israel uh, and and it touched so many families and touched universally when a famous personage uh, died in battle, it just, it just reminded everybody of, of the, the horror that we were going through. Next year is the 80th anniversary of that team. It's, it's hard to believe, but it's been 80 years since the 1942 Badgers. What would you like to see the university do to honor the memories of Dave Schreiner and Bob Bauman and the others? I'd like to see them try to line up a, a descendant member of the family of every, every player on the team. Uh, you know, we're not talking about 125 guys like today. Try to line up a descendant of everybody on the team and uh, introduce them and say what, what, they're, what they're, the member of their family did in World War II and uh, note that it was such a, uni and such a universal phenomenon. The thing I tried to emphasize in the book and the Badgers were notable for a lot of reasons. I mean, there's a perfect storm element in a, in a lot of this because uh, of being one of the top teams in the nation, having some of the top players in the nation, having famous, famous figures on the team. But I also could have closed my eyes, pointed to a, been, been uh, walked over to a map, pointed blindly and written about the football team that was closest to where my finger was and about their World War II contributions. And I think it would have been uh, a passable book, no matter who I wrote it about. And so I think the, the fact that the Badgers were kind of another step up and, and an exceptional team of, of, of men and football players really adds to that emphasis. And so I, I think there's still room to be able to honor them. And as we almost bid farewell to the greatest generation, and use the use the football team such as the Badgers as as kind of a, a walk as an example of the generation that we're losing. Well, maybe we can make that happen. Uh, you've done a, a remarkable job. You've brought them back to life. You've told a new generation about that generation. I think it is a wonderful accomplishment and a great addition to the literature of Wisconsin football and World War II and American society. So thank you for writing the book and thank you for taking the time to talk about it. I will tell you quickly that, it, that I've done the screenplay version also. It's gotten some bites. It, it hasn't been green lighted. It hasn't moved forward. But 
it ends with the credits rolling in kind of a, a one or two sentence summary where you you can see the, the headshot of, of the actor who plays that player and then the headshot of the real person and then says and gives each a one or two sentence summary of what that player did in World War II. So that's how I could see it happening in real life at Camp Randall Stadium, introducing uh, each figure, each figure's descendant and uh, highlighting what each one of them did in the war. Well, the university has a new athletic director. I'm sure he's looking to make uh, a mark with some, some nice uh, outreach. So maybe we can make this happen. I'm afraid that is all the time we have with Terry Fry. Again, the book is Third Down and War to Go, the All-American 1942 Wisconsin Badgers from our very good friends at the Wisconsin Historical Society Press. Next week on Mass and Book Beat, the rock and roll detective, Jim Birkenstadt, talking about his book, The Beetle Who Vanished. Until then, on behalf of News and Public Affairs Director Charlie Pittman and all of us here at Madison Bookbeat, I'm Stu Levitan. Thank you for joining us. And now, as Ben Sidron plays us out with a little bit of Little Sherry, please stay tuned for Alex Wilding White and All Around Jazz. You're listening to WORT 89.9 FM, Madison. Listener-sponsored community radio.